Adam and Eve had a son. Then Eve said, I'll name him Cain, because I got him with the help of the Lord. Later, she had another son and named him Abel. Abel became a sheep farmer, but Cain farmed the land. One day, Cain gave part of his harvest to the Lord, and Abel also gave an offering to the Lord. He killed the firstborn lamb from one of his sheep and gave the Lord the best parts of it. The Lord was pleased with Abel and his offering, but not with Cain and his offering. This made Cain so angry that he could not hide his feelings. The Lord said to Cain, What's wrong with you? Why do you have such an angry look on your face? If you had done the right thing, you would be smiling. But you did the wrong thing, and now sin is waiting to attack you like a lion. Sin wants to destroy you, but don't let it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go for a walk. And when they are out in a field, Cain killed him. Afterwards, the Lord asked Cain, Where is Abel? How should I know? He answered. Am I supposed to look after my brother? Then the Lord said, Why have you done this horrible thing? You killed your own brother, and his blood flowed onto the ground. Now his blood is calling out for me to punish you, and so I'll put you under a curse. Because you killed Abel and made his blood run out on the ground, you'll never be able to farm the land again. If you try to farm the land, it won't produce anything for you. From now on, you'll be without a home, and you'll spend the rest of your life wandering from place to place. This punishment is too hard, Cain said. You're making me leave my home and live far from you. I'll have to wander about without a home, and just anyone could kill me. No, the Lord answered. Anyone who kills you will be punished seven times worse than I am punishing you. So the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn everyone not to kill him. But Cain had to go far from the Lord and live in the land of wandering, which is east of Eden. Later, Cain and his son and his wife had a son named Enoch. At the time, Cain was building a town, and so he named it Enoch after his son. Then Enoch had a son named Arad, who had a son named Mahujiel, who had a son named Methusiel, who had a son named Lamech. Lamech married Adar, then Zila. Lamech and Adar had two sons, Jubal and Jubal. The goat... No, their son, Jubal, <laughs> was the first to live in tents and raise sheep and goats. Jubal was the first to play harps and flutes. Lamech and Zila had a son named Tubal, Cain who made tools out of bronze and iron. They also had a daughter whose name was Namar. One day Lamech said to his two wives, A young man wounded me and I killed him. Anyone who tries to get even with me will be punished ten times more than anyone who tries to get even with Cain. Adam and his wife had another son. They named him Seth because they said, God has given us a son to take the place of Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain. Later, Seth had a son and named him Enosh. About this time, people started worshipping the Lord. Thank you, Abby. It is very well there. So we've been working our way through Genesis and two weeks ago uh, Sarah took us through the fall and the story um, of Adam and Eve when they took the the fruit that God told them not to in Genesis chapter 3. And it's called the fall because they fell from grace because they wanted to live autonomously from God. 
and choosing to make themselves their own gods rather than trusting in God and his character. And we saw that in spite of their disobedience, there were three wonderful things to meditate on uh, in that chapter. Firstly, Adam and Eve did not make up the plan of God. He knew what would happen all along and he had already decided on a plan for bringing reconciliation, uh, though it would cost them unimaginably. God is God and we mere humans cannot mess up his plan. And secondly, the world is still a good world. And despite the brokenness we see around us and some, some of the painful things we go through, I think we can all also say that it's still a good world. That the world still reflects its beauty and is a place for us to enjoy and flourish and flourish in, even though it's now tainted by the mark of sin. And thirdly, even though God's judgment was evident uh, so early on in this uh, book of Genesis, so was his amazing grace. He came looking for Adam and Eve and offered them a chance to turn to him, and then he clothed them to cover their shame. And of course, we also see in Genesis 3.15 the promise of the one who would eventually come to cover their shame and sin once and for all, crushing the head of the serpent. And today we're going to see even more of God's grace as he responds to the first recorded murder in human history. That's a bit of a dark story, wasn't it? It's, it's not easy to read. And it's, it's easy to look at the story of Cain and Abel, to look at Cain and think, oh, that's, that's him, that's him. Uh, and not to perhaps see some of ourselves in Cain. So we're going to delve into that today. Humanity is capable, capable of some pretty horrendous things, isn't it? Um, we can't scroll through the news on our phones uh, very long before we, we are confronted with some horrific story that someone did to someone else. And I was reading an article on the news uh, the other day where a Spanish man uh, allegedly drugged and killed his two young children because he wanted to make his ex-wife suffer for leaving him or rejecting him. Just... And, and you think, how can someone do such a horrendous thing to people they previously loved? Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, we need look no further than Genesis 4 to begin to understand how this happens. In this disturbing story that we've just read together, we're going to look at three points. Firstly, the danger of offering the wrong sacrifice. Secondly, the incredible graciousness of God. And thirdly, what the meaning of life really is. So Cain offered the wrong sacrifice, that much is clear. But it's not immediately clear why. The Bible says that Abel kept flocks, Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and, Cain, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions of some of the firstborn of his flock. So Abel bought the best of what he had. It doesn't say that Cain did that. It's, it kind of almost hints that Cain kept the best parts of his produce back from the Lord. But it doesn't, it, I mean, it hints at that, but um, it's not necessarily the reason why perhaps God um, did not accept Cain's offering. There must be something more to it. <clears throat> Having said that, it's, it's far harder to give the best of what you've got, isn't it? To, to give the first of what you've got. Uh, it's easier to give 
uh, the stuff that's left over because you've taken what you want out of it. So it's not that God prefers meat over vegetables. That's, that's not it. Okay. <clears throat> so Cain and Abel were both giving the fruits of their different labours, which is fine. God's not going to say, not that keen on broccoli, prefer lamb chops. God doesn't say that. It's not in God's nature. So to make progress on digging into this, this scripture is so deep. It's like you you keep on digging and you don't uh, feel like you've really articulated everything that's there. But we can get some insight onto how God viewed Cain's sacrifice from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead. So Abel's sacrifice was not just about giving bits of animals to God. It was about his faith. His faith. And because of his faith, God proclaimed him as righteous, right? He was commended as righteous. So he offered his sacrifice, but it was his faith that pleased God. His faith that God credited as righteous. Now we know that saving faith, faith that pleases God, Faith that God's created, God credits to us as righteousness, as faith in God's goodness and grace. Okay, God's goodness and grace. It's believing that God and His grace will save us, even though we're undeserving. It's a response to the salvation of God. Okay, so God does something, we receive it, and then in response, we offer something, we offer a sacrifice. And God delights in this kind of faith and he will never reject it. Now we can say, but how did Abel... I mean, it's kind of saying we know that Jesus is, is the means by which we receive righteousness. But how did Abel know about Jesus? Well, let's read Genesis 3.15. This is what God said to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. (coughs) Now the word he, in this passage, he will crush your head, is singular. Okay? That's not saying that humanity is going to have trouble with snakes for the the rest of time. Even though, you know, that might might be true. It's not saying that. It's saying someone is going to come along and crush you. Crush your head is death, right? To, be, to have your head crushed, that's it. You don't get up from there. He, you will strike his heel. When, when, a, when a snake targets part of your body, it really hurts. And we know how much Christ was hurt on the cross. So this is talking about Christ. And Abel knew this. Abel, Abel knew of this, um, of what God said to the serpent. So... When Abel brought his sacrifice to God, he was offering it as a gift of gratitude and trust in God that God would make him righteous. Okay? Through this promise. Even though it was far ahead of him, he didn't know that the Messiah would be called Jesus. He just knew that God was going to make him right. And that was his sacrifice. One day, God would overturn what the servant had done and bring reconciliation between God and humanity. 
So if Abel brought his sacrifice in faith, in the right kind of faith, in God's saving grace, <clears throat> it means that Cain did not bring his sacrifice in this faith. <clears throat> in what way was he bringing his sacrifice? In what faith did he have? He was offering his sacrifice as a means to obtain approval from God. He bought the things he produced to try and earn God's favour. He wanted God to look at his sacrifice and say, Wow, Cain, you've just done amazingly well with these vegetables. Look at this broccoli, not a worm in sight. Cain's offering was more about Cain. It wasn't about God. He wanted God to say that he was good, but God said the exact opposite. And the scripture says that Cain was very angry. Now I looked up the Hebrew word for angry here. <clears throat> and it means to burn or be kindled with anger. Okay, so <laughs> furious is probably a better word. Furious. And then before it, it's the Hebrew word for muchness, force and abundance. Okay, so very furious it would probably mean. He's murderous. And we know that he turned murderous. People who are trying to save themselves get very angry when their means of salvation is rejected. Cain turned murderous. And so have many throughout human history. In the Spanish man uh, case that we started with, he wanted the approval and acceptance of his wife. That was his means of salvation, and when he didn't get it, he also turned murderous. <clears throat> and human evil puts a whole new level on misery, on the misery of life, doesn't it? Jordan <clears throat> Peterson writes that in his experience, human evil can break people who have been strong enough to endure earthquakes, floods, poverty, and cancer. And this is what he wrote. It is for this reason that the rise of self-consciousness and its attendant realisation of mortality and the knowledge of good and evil is presented in the early chapters of Genesis as a cataclysm of cosmic magnitude. It's a disaster. Self-consciousness, the rise of self-consciousness. When Adam and Eve sinned, they became self-conscious. Where before they weren't. And through the self-awareness, Cain approached God wanting to be justified by what he did, knowing it was wrong, and God said no. And Cain outraged and shamed. Shame is another um, aspect of self-awareness. Uh, shamed by God's rejection of a sacrifice, plots revenge. Why did he want revenge? He commits the most terrible of crimes to basically say to God, if you won't accept my sacrifice, I'll make sure my goody good brother can't offer you any more sacrifices either. Cain murders Abel because Abel was accepted by God and Abel is everything Cain wished he could be. He wants to hurt God in addition by taking the life of the person God has accepted. He wants to register his fundamental opposition to existence. If I can't have my own way, I'm going to try and stuff it up for the rest of you. And finally, he wants to damn himself because he failed in his goal of pleasing God with a sacrifice. So Jordan Peterson again writes that the hard lot of life, magnified by the consequences of continually rejected sacrifices, 
will bend and twist people into truly monstrous forms. And this is certainly what happened to Cain. Now, I've never really identified with Cain and what he did, but this concept of rejected sacrifices really kind of shed some light in it for me. And I started to think back on some of the most painful experiences of my life, and I saw that it was actually when I offered a sacrifice and it was rejected. Let's take some examples. Who here has had their heart broken by someone else? Right? Yeah. I still remember the first time it happened to me. The pain was only emotional, like I hadn't lost a limb or anything. But man, it felt like it was excruciating. And why was it so painful? Because we held out the sacrifice of our hearts, of our love. And we said to the other person, love me, accept me. And they said, nah, no thanks. And man, that hurts. That hurts, doesn't it? They rejected our most precious of sacrifices. And the more our identity, the weight of our existence, our means of salvation, if you like, is entwined with that offering, the more it hurts. And in my case, after I, a few months after I got over the, the grief, I began to get really angry. And I had to tell myself, calm down, mate. <laughs> that's, how, that's the way it works, right? Offer a sacrifice, it's rejected. And after the grief comes anger. What are some more examples of the pain of rejected sacrifices? Being passed over for promotion at work after you've been hardly, you know, hard at work for many years. I looked up how many workplace shootings there have been. There's been heaps. People get really angry when they get rejected at work. Why? Because their identity is entwined. They bring a sacrifice, it's rejected. Next minute, and they head off down to work. Let's think about further back in our childhood. You remember being... <laughs> and the, you know, two people have to pick people. And the, and the best people are picked first, and then you're waiting in line, and you get down to about two. It feels terrible, doesn't it? Why? Because it's, we're here, this is our sacrifice, and nobody wants it. And finally, you get down to the last. Oh, here you. Oh, cheers. <laughs> it hurts, eh? It really hurts. Oops, sorry. I oh, went back to the beginning. Yeah, so, rejected sacrifices. What about the school dance? Remember that? The boys had to go and pick, pick the at least the At least the boys couldn't be rejected in that case. But, you know, I felt sorry for some of the girls. They're like, maybe it's changed now since, since I was there. But, you know, everyone gets picked and then waiting, waiting. Brave new world. The brave new world. Oh man, how how painful would that be? Would you like a dance? Ah, oh, no, you look angry. <laughs> Just going to crawl back in my hole. Yeah. Two no's. <laughs> 
Ah, ok. <laughs> wait, wait. Oh, dear. Goodness me. I'm not sure which would be worse. Oh, oh, dear. Anyway, how can we keep ourselves from this pain and destructiveness? Is there a way that we can do that? Yes. Stop offering the wrong sacrifice. Stop offering the wrong sacrifice. Stop offering your most precious sacrifice to another person. Don't think that if only I had this person's love, my life would have meaning. Stop caring so much about what other people think. We can make sacrifices to what other people think. And then they don't, they don't give us the affirmation that we need and we get all pippy, don't we? Stop offering sacrifices to wealth as if, as if money can bring meaning in life. Stop offering your sacrifice to achievements. If only I was successful, if only I was a billionaire like Elon Musk. Trillion, maybe he might be the first trillionaire. If only I was like him, then I'd be somebody. No, stop offering that sacrifice. That's the wrong sacrifice. What about regret? Do you struggle looking back upon your life and, and there's some particular painful parts of your life that you, it still hurts when you think about it. That's regret. Regrets, I think, are an expression of the pain of past rejected sacrifices. And it's an indication that you're still trying to offer that same sacrifice because it still hurts. How do we move on from regret? We stop buying into the logic of that sacrifice. You know, it took me years to get over being rejected by that girl. <clears throat> and now I think, yeah, she rejected me, but my identity doesn't rest on what she thinks. It rests on what God thinks, and he's crazy about me. You know, now I'm free. I can look back at that. Oh, yeah, get down. You know, I can laugh at myself. <laughs> That's the key, I think. When you're free, you can laugh. If you can't laugh, if I, if I look back upon that time and I think, oh, I can't laugh. It means I'm not over it. Speak truth to our hearts before the Lord. It's something we do with God. Thank you, Lord, that my identity does not rest in what someone else thinks of me. It rests in what you think of me. And you're crazy about me. Remember, Abel, he offered his sacrifice as a response to God's salvation and gratitude and thanksgiving, but Cain's sacrifice was a means to salvation. And it's fascinating that these two men signify the two paths to salvation. Abel, grace. Cain, self-effort or uh, legalism. God has made um, self-effort or legalism impossible. <clears throat> There's a way to do it. It's in the scriptures. You have to obey every part of the law and if you disobey just once, you're guilty of breaking the whole lot. That's the standard. No one can attain that standard. So God has made um, legalism impossible. So grace is the only way. Cain is the father of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who murdered Jesus. And it's no coincidence that Abel points to Christ. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, 
to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So this is the first point for today. Stop offering the wrong sacrifices. And how do you know if you're offering the wrong sacrifice? Start with your regrets, your shame, jealousy and anger. Whatever it is that makes you angry. Ask the Lord to reveal what's going on and deal to it. But now let's look at how gracious God is. I mean, some people think that the God of the Old Testament is judgmental and the God of the New Testament is all gracious. But that's not so. Let's, let's look at how God deals with Cain here. It's, it's really unbelievable. So first up, <clears throat> this is what God says to Cain. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. He doesn't go to Cain and say, look, you idiot. If you don't pull yourself in the line, you're going to get the back of my hand. He doesn't say, he's like a counsellor. You know, Tim Keller says, when God asks questions, he's like a counsellor. That's what a good counsellor does. They ask questions. Hey, why are you angry? God is saying to Cain, acceptance is waiting for you. It's here. But you've got to submit yourself. Turn around. Stop going in the direction you're going. And then he says this really alarming thing here. Sin is crouching at your door. We've all seen those nature programs. And they're full of like lions and tigers hunting other things. And we can see the lion or the tiger. And we can also see the gazelle or the deer that it's hunting. And this thing crouches down. Why is it crouched down? It crouches down to make it appear like, oh, there's nothing here, mate. Just keep on munching the grass. It's all okay. And this thing is crawling through the grass, and then when it's at the right time, it'll pounce and boom. Frightening stuff. Now God says that sin crouches like a lion hunting its prey. It desires to have you. It desires to have you. Sin it, it desire, desire is a personal thing. Right? Sin is crouching. It desires to have you. It's, it's a person that wants to consume us, to destroy us. And that's why in Peter 5 we say, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So the message in all this is take sin seriously. All sin belongs to the devil and his stuff is cursed. God cursed it. So don't play with it. Pornography, gossip, adultery and all this other stuff is his stuff and it's cursed. And God doesn't want us to be cursed. He wants us to be blessed. So let's never play with sin. But the challenge is that while we can clearly see the sin of others, we can clearly see the corrupting sin of others, can't we? It's easy to spot. <laughs> but we can't see our own. We've kind of, it's kind of blended into our... I don't know. It's, just, we, we, it's hard to see your own sin, your own weaknesses. 
it doesn't appear significant in our eyes. How can we get a handle on sin that is crouching in our lives? You ask someone else. I remember um, we had this pile of concrete in, in our backyard, and there's some rabbits that lived on it. And Frankie, our dog, she spent hours hunting these rabbits, and she would sneak down. And, and it was funny because I could see Frankie, I could see the rabbit on the hill, and it, you know, it took Frankie ages before she got it. But I could clearly see Frankie. And this is like with our own weaknesses, our own sin. Other people can clearly see them. I remember I was, I was watching The Lord of the Rings. Remember that part where Shelob the spider is hunting Frodo? And this, this guy calls out on the movie theater, Look out, behind you! So, Bro, it's a movie. Can't hear you. <laughs> the point is... Other people can see our crouching sin, especially those closest to us. And that's why in our vivid vision, we've got this. We are not afraid to confront discrepancies between what we think we believe and what we do. And we actively seek God's revelation as to why these discrepancies exist, so that it can be removed from our lives. We are accountable to each other in this process too. And we are not afraid to invite helpful and loving feedback from our church family. So that explains this process of... Asking someone, what's the crouching sin in my life? Can we be people that don't get offended when we get that kind of feedback? Can we be people that invite others to say, yeah, tell me, tell me, because I'm, I'm blind, I can't see it, it's crouching. Sarah and I have just started doing this marriage devotional together, and the, the, the very second one we did was <coughs> a reflection exercise, was to set aside some time to be alone and talk to each other in great charity and grace about the strengths and weaknesses we have discovered in each other. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing. Uh, that's, that's difficult. It's not, it's not easy. If you don't have a spouse, ask a member of your family or a friend who, who you know loves you, but they'll tell you the truth. Don't, don't, don't go to someone who's like, ah... Oh, it's too nice, they'll never say, oh, yeah, it's not a big deal. Go to someone who will tell you the truth. But let's get back to God and Cain. God warns Cain that he's being targeted. He doesn't want him to sin. God loves Cain. He doesn't want to lose the relationship he has with him. And did Cain ask for help? No. Remember, God is my helper. He's here to help, so let's ask him. He's basically inviting Cain. I'm here. But Cain is light years away from repentance. Not only does he lie by claiming that he doesn't know what happened to Abel, but then he says, am I my brother's keeper? I've never really understood this. But the the message translation says, am I his babysitter? This is is God he's talking to. And he says, am I his babysitter? I mean, how insolent is that? Uh, If I was God at this point... Sorry, mate, you're gone. No, in a tone of anguish, the Lord says, what have you done? And then he goes on to tell Cain, he knows exactly what he's done because Abel's blood is crying out to him from the ground. And and God pronounces a curse upon Cain. No longer would the ground produce fruit from, but more importantly, Cain would have to leave the presence of the Lord. So isn't that staggeringly gracious of God? 
This guy's murdered his brother. He refuses multiple invitations to repent. He complains bitterly when he gets punished, even though later on the Old Testament law would have him stoned to death. And then later on he gets a go well mark from God, like a protector so that he won't be harmed. I mean, this gave me a huge amount of encouragement uh, when I thought, think about those who refuse to acknowledge the Lord. God is unbelievably gracious to them, but ultimately won't force people into staying in his presence if they insist on their own way. So that's stop offering the wrong sacrifices, the incredible graciousness of God. And finally, the meaning of life, I believe, is in this passage. It's easy to overlook it. At the start of Genesis, forward both Cain and Abel, despite the fall, <clears throat> despite the fact that they have lost something precious, they're still in the presence of God. They, they live in His presence. They can still converse with Him. And it's easy to miss that when God warns Cain that sin is crouching at his door and that it desires to have him, it's easy to miss that God desires Cain too. Right? Sin desires him, yes, but God desires him more. Cain is an object of desire. We are all objects of desire. God desires us and sin desires us. The devil desires us. God doesn't want Cain to have to go. He wants Cain to make his... As telos, remember this word that means a, a picture of flourishing, a vision of the good life that captivates us. He wants Cain to make his telos living life with him. But because of Cain's pride, his telos remains living in autonomy from God, wanting to bring his deeds to God and using God to, to get his approval. And after we read this, So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod. He's to be there. That's got to be one of the saddest verses in the Bible, I think. He deliberately chose to go from the Lord's presence. So he was already like Adam and Eve, living in some distance from God, no longer in Eden. But here we say, right, I'm leaving. I'm leaving your presence completely. And this is the greatest price that he paid, I think. He would have to live as an exile for the rest of his life. <clears throat> and here's where it comes pretty close to us. As I reflected on this passage, I realised that I felt sorry for uh, Abel because his life was cut short. But I also felt that Cain had come up quite well. He still gets married, still has kids, still gets to do what he's doing. I was like, it's that. in the context of if life is the most important thing, then Cain comes off pretty well, doesn't he? But the scriptures tell us that living life without God is not living at all. Cain's lost the presence of God. You see that? And in actual fact, when he died, Abel was far closer to God than in life. And it was Cain who would come up much worse out of it by having to leave God's presence. Not just in life, but in eternity. So perhaps there's something in me that, that seems to value living life more than, than living it with the Lord. 
So I'm going to dig into that a bit with God. But this, this essence of this passage is what Paul says, confirmed in Philippians 3 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Knowing Christ is everything. Knowing Christ is the meaning of life. It, 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 it is of such surpassing worth that everything else is like garbage in comparison. And if you just said to yourself, really? Is that it? There's got to be more to life than that. Maybe there's a bit more of Cain in you than you think. What is it that we value more than knowing Christ? <clears throat> Often we get tied up in knots wrestling with what is the point of life? What's my life for? This is it. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's simple. We make it complicated. Knowing Christ is worth more than anything else this life offers us. Tim Keller thinks that there's a test for us to show us how much of a cane we are. And I found it quite confronting. So I thought I'd share it with you so that you could be confronted too. When life doesn't go well, when we don't get our own way, when our sacrifice is rejected, do we get mad and bitter? Do we complain to God and say how unjust he is? If we do, we're claiming that God owes us. We're not like Abel responding to salvation. We're being like Cain trying to earn salvation. Responding to a rejected sacrifice. And in doing so, we're not recognising God's desire for us. We're devaluing the meaning of life, which is simply living it in his presence. How can we be more like Abel than Cain? By focusing on the real Abel, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done for us. And that's why I love thinking about the fact that Jesus has made me perfect forever. All of my sin, my past, my present and my future sin, he's taken it all away from me. And if I have sinned by valuing life more than uh, living life with God, then he's already covered me for that. Isn't that wonderful? That thought alone just fills my heart with peace. And my heart wants to respond in love and worship to God. The blood of Jesus cried out for justice, but not in the way that Cain, that Abel's blood did. Abel's blood demanded that Cain be punished for what he did. But Jesus' blood demands that God not punish us, because our sins have already been paid for. And if God punished us for our sin, he would be receiving payment twice, and that would be unjust. So the next time you sin, the next time you disappoint yourself, the next time you get the pill. Remember that your standing before God hasn't changed. He still sees you as perfect because Jesus has already paid for what you did in covenant. Isn't Jesus awesome? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that your blood cries out for mercy for us. Thank you, Lord, that we can receive your righteousness and stand in perfection before you. Not because of our own offerings, of our own sacrifices, Lord, but because of yours, your perfect sacrifice. Thank you for this beautiful gift of salvation. We worship you and we thank you and we honour you. Lord, help us to stop offering sacrifices to things that are rubbish. Lord, may we only offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and gratitude to you.
for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.